Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I have the great pleasure of sitting down with John Pitts, Global Head of Policy at Plaid. This episode turned out to be perhaps my favorite I've done so far. Though Plaid needs no introduction, it is a data transfer network that powers fintech and digital finance products by enabling applications to connect with users' bank accounts. Prior to Plaid, John was one of the first hires at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Before the CFPB, he was an associate at Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe. John is a graduate of UPenn's Law School and Kenyon College. In today's episode, John and I cover a ton of ground, including his time at the CFPB and their initial assessment of Bitcoin, comparing and contrasting the US, UK, and EU fintech regulatory landscape, why he's so excited about Canada's fintech prospects, their landmark study with the Harris Poll on fintech adoption during COVID, and much more. Let's get started. Hi, John, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you as a guest today. I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to a fun conversation. All right. So where are you quarantining at the moment? And have you picked up anything new in quarantine so far? Well, quarantine is the one place you don't want to pick up anything new. Uh, That's the whole reason we're doing it. I'm actually in Washington, D.C., in my house. I would say there's there's three big new things that I have picked up during quarantine, other than baking bread like everyone else in the world. I have become a school principal as I shepherd my nine-year-old twins through remote fifth grade. The family has gotten a new dog as part of our quarantine expansion, so I'm learning how to be a better dog parent. To, to Raven Corona, who, yes, was named by my children in honor of the times in which she was acquired by our family. And I have started shopping for farmland in West Virginia, not actually, but sort of in my mind as a way of thinking about what life would be like if I lived on hundreds of acres instead of 1,200 square feet in downtown DC. So the, I don't know that any of those are really good new projects to pick up during uh, COVID, but, but that's what my quarantine is. Yeah, I think all of us that are living in cities have been flirting with that bucolic dream of going out into the countryside and <laughs> living a simpler life. What has fifth grade been like for your kids? That's got to be tough with remote learning. Not only is it tough with remote learning, they're in the same school and for the entire duration of their time at that school, they've been in separate classes. There have been two pre-K classes, two kindergarten classes, and they're always in different classes. Now they have to be in the same class as each other. And fifth grade is right when you sort of hit that age of being able to be embarrassed by your sibling. And so that raises the sort of extra challenge of, you know, they're embarrassing each other and they don't like the answers they're giving each other to the teachers. But I would say by and large, it is going well. We feel very lucky about that. I know there's a lot of parents out there who are having real struggles with their kids with remote learning. And so I will definitely count my blessings of a reasonably easy remote learning situation in our family. Yeah, it cannot be an easy situation. I definitely sympathize there. So to begin, could you just walk us through your background and take us up until you joined Plaid? Sure. I'll try and give you the very short version of it because, you know, at 40, I am uh, like a Methuselah for being at a fintech company. And I don't want to give like the whole history from back at year zero. But I spent my first six years as a lawyer in private practice at a law firm in DC doing policy work for them. After that, right as the financial crisis was hitting, I joined a the very rarest of things, which is a government 
government startup. I joined the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau right after the crisis as the CFPB was getting stood up because I wanted to work for government at some point and realized that that was probably going to be the only opportunity in my life where I could go to a government agency where the answer to what I was supposed to do with that agency was whatever I realize is supposed to be the thing done at that agency, right? So like at other places, especially in government that have been around for 50, 75, 150 years, there's often that, well, we're doing this because we've always done it that way. And at a six month old agency, that's not even an option. So I actually had two jobs while I was at CFPB and the first six months of each job, the assignment was figure out what this job is supposed to do, which was fantastic. It's a great assignment to get. But it was at CFPB where I really sort of got hooked on fintech. And I'll say it was in a really specific way. I was in a weird part of the agency called Intergovernmental Affairs. And that role was to help figure out, you know, with a new agency that borrowed some powers from other government agencies and that shares powers with the Fed and the attorneys general. How do you figure out who does what? How do you figure out how to work together? It's probably hubristic for me to say, four years in, we had figured that all out and we knew exactly who was doing what and we were all working perfectly. But we had figured it out enough that my role shifted to, hey, you know, there's these weird new things happening in in consumer finance and none of them really fit squarely into our existing regulations. How do we figure out who does what with all these new things happening on the market? And the first one was Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, where, you know, if you've ever wanted to be in a really fun conversation, sit in a Fed conference room and talk with the Fed and the OCC and the FDIC and try to all figure out what exactly a Bitcoin is. And then after you pretend that you figured out what a Bitcoin is, try and figure out who's responsible for it. Because... (laughs) There's no answers to that question. Uh, This was in like 2015, 2016 time, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. So still a little before the mania. Yes, it it was. It was just as the mania was starting, and that was enough to like start paying attention. And enough, I actually I remember going up to a meeting at the New York Fed and getting in a cab after the meeting and have the cab driver tell me on the entire ride back to Penn Station about his Bitcoin investments and how I should really get into Bitcoin investments. And it was it was one of those moments where it's like, well, if the Fed is talking about it and the cabbies are talking about it, we probably need to put some resources to this and figure right. out who's responsible if something goes wrong here. Right. That's when you know. That's like that old adage with when you're, you know, cab drivers talking about stock investments is when you know you need to get out of the stock market. Yes, although it turned out that was, in fact, a really good time to get into Bitcoin because that's right where the sort of spikes hit. You know, we moved from Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to a bunch of these sort of fintech applications that were outside of federal regulation. And the more I looked at them, the more I became convinced that this was going to be a sea change in financial services. And if you look at sort of how financial services has evolved over time, it's not a sort of straight slope linear progression. What you tend to have are sort of these moments where a significant change occurs in how financial services work. And then for the next 20, 30, 40 years, that change slowly sort of rolls its way through the system. I think about like, you know, the creation of FDIC insurance over deposits, massive change in the way that banks were organized and the way that consumers thought about interactions with a bank in the United States. And that 
took probably 50 years to really sort of fully flow through the system and become the way banking works and all of the sort of implications of it. Same thing with like interstate banking, where banks can now branch out into multiple states. You see this huge wave of consolidation. It's fundamentally a policy change, but it it also changes the way that consumers interact with their bank and their finances. And I became convinced that the next big change was happening right now and that the core of that change was that something that used to be basically a waste product of financial services, the information that a consumer generated when they did a financial transaction had gone from being a waste product to being a resource. And if you could put that resource in the hands of the consumer and give them the control to share it with other financial institutions, the consumer was, one, going to get much better options. They're going to get lower rates. They're going to get services they weren't getting from their financial institution. Consumers who had been locked out of financial services because of historic discrimination and redlining and other things, we're going to get access to new products. That was going to be the catalyst for this sea change. And so as I reached that conclusion, I started looking around for what's the company that sort of is going to be the company driving this change? And the answer was Plaid. And there were a couple of former CFPB people at Plaid, and I was able to sort of get an introduction there. And that's what brought me to Plaid, right? As they were looking for a policy person, I was looking for them. And it turns out we found each other. I don't mean it to sound like a rom-com meet cute, because it wasn't quite that. You know, there was also the change of administrations and having someone come into the CFPB who didn't necessarily think the CFPB should exist, which makes it slightly less comfortable to work there. But for me, it really was a pull to sort of find the company that I thought was the best situated to drive a fundamental change in financial services. And that's what brought me to Plaid. So what exactly is your role as global head of policy? What does your day-to-day look like? Do you have any KPIs that you track toward? Let me give you sort of a slightly long answer on what I do and then a shorter and maybe more precise answer. Plaid right now is in the United States, Canada, the UK, Ireland, France, Spain, and the Netherlands. That is four different legal jurisdictions in terms of the policy of how fintech is supposed to work and how banks and fintechs are supposed to relate to each other. So the long-winded version of my job is I try and keep track of all of that. And I try to help run a team where we are able to both keep Plaid operating efficiently in all of those places. And to the extent that the four different jurisdictions have laws that don't really work for fintech and for the success of fintech, finding those areas where there can be improvements and trying to drive them in the direction that really promotes innovation, promotes growth, and promotes really strong consumer outcomes. The shorter and kind of quippier version, but I think in some ways more accurate, is I'm responsible for the team at Plaid that establishes the legitimacy and the desirability of Plaid's network with policymakers, consumer groups, and legislators. And I want to be really, really precise on legitimacy. Like The biggest advantage that banks have is they've been around for hundreds of years. They grew up with the modern state. JP Morgan would lend money to the federal government to help them out of a jam from time to time. They're like banking and democracies go together and have historically gone together. And that's great. And like banks are 
viewed by everyone as a legitimate institution, and here come all of these upstart fintechs, are they legitimate? Are they responsible? Are they going to be able to take their place in the financial services ecosystem as an equal to banks? And I think that's the first objective is to demonstrate to policymakers that you can do that. The next objective is then to have policymakers say, not just can you, but we want you to. Right? We see the value that you're delivering to consumers. We see the choices you're offering. We see that you're making the financial services world more inclusive and more open to people who have been left out of it before. We want you to come in, help us figure out ways to create more positive innovation and more opportunities for fintechs. And so it's that legitimacy and desirability that to me are the North Stars of what we do. And the KPIs sometimes are just like, are we alive the next day? That's a key performance indicator for me, um, <laughs> always. But at a more granular level, it depends on the country we are in. But each country right now, one of the most exciting things about being at Plaid is every single one of those countries I just named is doing some major legislation or policymaking around fintech right now. And so the KPIs that matter the most are are those rule changes going in a direction that benefits fintech or is it going in a direction that harms fintech? And if it's going in the direction that benefits fintech and benefits the consumers who use fintech, I count that as a win every single day. So it's a bit of a big question, but on a high level, how do you compare and contrast the regulatory landscapes of these places? I try and think of it on two axes, whether there is open finance or closed finance in the country, and then whether there is a standard for how open finance works or if there is not a standard. Basically, like, is there a uniform data standard? So the best example of that is in the UK, you have open banking capital O, capital B. That's probably 50% of the way to open finance. What I mean by that is in the UK, consumers have the right to access their payment accounts. They don't have the right to access their savings account. They don't have the right to access their mortgage. They don't have the right to access their pensions, but they do have a very clear right to access their payment accounts. And a government-created body, the OBIE, the Open Banking Implementation Entity for people who don't collect acronyms like they are seashells, which I do, has written a single API standard that every bank has to adopt in order to give access to that. So they are probably sort of top right quadrant in the world right now, though if they're failing on anything, they're failing on the fact that they've only created that open banking framework for some of the financial information that a consumer should have control over. Let's contrast that with the United States. In the United States, you have Dodd-Frank 1033, which creates the right for the consumer to access all of their account information. In some ways, that has created the strongest open finance right in the world, though that right has not been very well defined, and it's mostly been implemented by private sector businesses sort of saying, this is what the consumer wants, this is the demand we're meeting, and the law permits this and requires it, even if it hasn't gotten into a lot of detail. What the United States doesn't have is any sort of data standard for how that should work. And that means in a country with more than 10,000 banks, the challenge of figuring out what the rules of the game are, are immense and incredibly complex. However, 
there are real advantages in the market-driven approach in the U.S. And the biggest advantage is the consumer is really in the driver's seat and consumer demand is driving the change more than anything else. I think if I had to say sort of one big contrasting point between the U.S. approach and the European approach, the Europeans started with regulation and they started with regulation about four years ago and tried to guess what the market was going to look like and then write a regulation to define that market as opposed to the U.S. where they allowed the market to develop for a number of years and are only just now, in fact, in the last month, the CFPB has said, hey, we're going to do a rulemaking on Dodd-Frank 1033 and start putting some regulations around the market. Honestly, like there are pros and cons of both approaches. If I had to make a judgment right now, I would say the European approach probably has shown itself to be slightly worse than the U.S. approach so far. And so far because they guessed at the market and their guess was a little bit narrower than the market actually turned out to be. It has not kept up with the rate of change in consumer demand. And therefore, I think it has been a little bit more limiting of innovation. Just like a quick exemplar of that, In the UK, you have to get a license to be a fintech. There are around 300 licensed fintechs in the UK, which is by far the largest European market for being a fintech. Contrast that to the United States, where Plaid by itself has 3,000 fintech customers. So literally an order of magnitude difference. And that's not just population size. That is a set of rules that have been a little bit less prescriptive and a little bit more open-ended in terms of what type of innovation is possible. And I think that gives a slight edge to the U.S. approach so far. That said, we've got the regulations coming. It's going to depend on how good those regulations are. Canada is probably going to move first with regulations. I'm really, really excited about what's happening in Canada right now. It's not something that like you normally say on a podcast, like, I am so excited about Canada, but I am so (laughs) excited about Canada because I think... Uh, Canada has the opportunity to see what went wrong and what went right in the UK. They are the neighbors to the US. There's a huge amount of cross-border investment and cross-border use of financial services between the US and Canada. And so in some ways, if Canada sort of goes big and goes for a really good regulatory structure, I think there is a real chance that that regulatory structure becomes the model for what gets adopted in the U.S. And if the U.S. and Canada adopt a regulatory structure that both promotes innovation and consumer safety, I think you're going to end up seeing that be the dominant structure that the world takes uh, in thinking about moving to this new world of open finance. That was awesome. Thank you. Very insightful and very rare that we get it, you know, kind of that clearly laid out across the three regions. Yeah. And I'm sorry, that was super, super long-winded of me. But like, <laughs> as you can probably tell, like yeah, you need the to. question of asking me a question of how do you compare <laughs> regulatory regimes for a new emerging financial service across multiple countries? Like <laughs> I gave you the shortest answer I could. And if you wanted another 45 minutes, I would go on forever. I really, really like <laughs> this stuff. I think it's incredibly exciting and not just exciting from like a nerd perspective, but like I think there is some potential here to have better financial services, not just for tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, but billions of people worldwide. And getting that right is so important that I can't help but sort of be giddy about it when I think about what's happening and how quickly it's happening. 
Yeah, for our listeners that are just doing the audio version of this podcast, John was beaming <laughs> throughout <laughs> that answer, almost out of his seat. So I think going back to what we were talking about earlier with kind of these monumental shifts in finance kind of all happening in small spurts instead of, instead of this slow burn, I think most people would say COVID shaping up to be one of those monumental shifts. So the impetus for this episode was the study that Plaid conducted with the Harris Poll to understand consumer behavior changes during COVID. So what was the study exactly that you did and what did you find? Thank you for asking, because this is, I think, one of the things I'm proudest of at my time at Plaid. And it was actually our head of communications who came up with the idea, Heather. So I want to make sure she gets credit for it because it was really her baby. We've had a long running thesis at Plaid, not just that sort of people want to use fintech and people who are sort of tech savvy and sort of born online and born mobile, mobile first, wanted to use this, but that it was increasingly becoming widely adopted by most consumers. And also that for consumers who were using it, it was becoming more and more central to their life over time, right? Not just the thing you use to split your brunch check with your friends, but actually how you transact the basics of your everyday life as a financial consumer. And we'd had this idea and we'd started to see some real evidence that it was not just taking hold, but starting to accelerate. And then COVID hit. And we thought one of two things may happen. We thought this either is going to cause consumers to flee to safety and the safety that the consumers are going to want is like, you know, their one institution where they have everything under their control or it's going to accelerate that transition to digital finance and fintech. And we wanted to test that. And we started seeing some really, really strong evidence over the summer based on our own sort of traffic and metrics that the consumer demand was starting to really accelerate. So we hired a firm, Harris Polling, to go out and do a nationally representative survey because we didn't want to just sort of rely on the data. We wanted to hear from the consumers themselves, like, what does this mean to you? What is this moment like for you? And how is fintech either helping or hindering you in this time of sort of severe crisis? There were three huge takeaways for me. And for that, I mean, let me give you sort of the three numbers that I think are the big drivers here that to me are the most significant. And they're like the, if you remember three things from this podcast, these are the three things. 59, 69, 73. Those are the three numbers that matter the most in COVID that I've seen. 59% of Americans say they are using more apps to manage their money now than they did before the pandemic, right? So you've got people saying not only am I going to use these apps, I need to get more and I need to get more because I need to fill a gap in my life where something I was using was cut off from me because of COVID. 69% said that fintech was a lifeline for them during COVID. This to me is is not just, oh, expanded use. This is a core use for me. I am not using it for fun things. I am not using it for... Uh, speculative things. I'm not using it on the weekends. I'm using it every day for the basics of my financial life. I could not manage my money without fintech. That to me is, I think, the most profound finding is the centrality of fintech in consumers' lives. And then 73, and I think this is the one that matters the most going forward, which is 73% of consumers said, I actually like this better. And after this is over, this is what I'm going to keep using. I'm not going back. 
And so what you end up having here is evidence, a bit of a virtuous circle. And it's the virtuous circle that we thought existed before the pandemic. And the pandemic has really just catalyzed and accelerated it, which is consumers test a fintech product because it serves a need that isn't being met for them right now. Once that need is met by that fintech product, the consumer starts relying more and more on fintech services for more essential services for them. Then as they rely on them on a fintech for those essential services, they realize, oh, this is actually better than what I had before. I'm going to keep using this. And then if I'm using it, I'm going to go download another app and I'm going to go download another one. So you get this sort of this real sort of reinforcing cycle for the consumer of I'm going to try it because I have to or because I want to. I like it so much, I'm going to use it for the essentials. And now that I'm using it for the essentials, I'm never going back. I think that for anyone who's interested in the fintech space is the clear story of what was happening. And COVID has just really crystallized that this is the future of consumer interaction with their financial services. Yeah, absolutely. And then going into kind of the population that you studied, are you able to talk about if this was, you know, 18 to 26-year-old digitally native millennials or? No, no, no. I still don't think my parents will be going into fintech other than some Venmo. We had a joke a little bit inside Plaid when we got some of the results back. And, you know, obviously they were results that we thought were really powerful. And and the joke was, you know, what do we do? Just like send the same survey 2000 times to our head of product and have him fill it out. And like, that's how we got the results. Um, <laughs> so no, it's actually, it's a nationally representative survey across mm-hmm. all age demographics, including both heavy fintech users and people who do not use a lot of fintech products, old people, young people, middle-aged all across the country, really like exactly the kind of nationally representative survey you would run for a presidential election to try and get the most comprehensive results possible. So where do you think the government's response and the PPP maybe fell short? You know, where could fintech and the government have been more helpful? Um, (laughs) Another uh, massive question. (laughs) It is another massive question and hot takes about where the government people you talk to all day long could have done better are always a risky thing. But fortunately, (laughs) I I have a relatively high tolerance for risk um, uh, and I'm willing to be game on this one. Can I actually answer, before I talk about PPP, can I talk about one other government program that just frustrated me to all end um, where I thought fintech could have helped better? Yeah. Um, the individual payments to consumers, $1,200 payments, we sent out checks to people. The federal government in 2020 printed millions of paper checks. They actually had to reopen check printing facilities to send checks to people. Nine million people still have not gotten their $1,200 payment that people started receiving in March of this year. I didn't know the number was that high. There is, yeah, it's, it's, it's shocking, right? And it should shock the conscience that in the most technologically advanced, strongest financial services country in the world, we are still at a place where paper checks are our means of getting money to people at a time of extreme crisis, and that 9 million people still haven't gotten that money. The government did try on this one. They tried to do direct deposit as much as possible. Their method of doing direct deposit was working with what they had, which was going to the IRS and finding tax filings from last year 
and using those direct deposit right. information. And what that meant was if you switched your bank account, you didn't get your money. Money went to bank accounts of people who had passed and the bank account was still open, all sorts of problems. I'm not going to be critical too much of what they did because frankly, the goal was get money as quickly as possible and they had to work with what they had. That said, now that the crisis has lessened a little bit, no one should accept the idea that if there's another crisis, we're going to have to go through the same thing. I mean, we did this in 2010 with the 2010 stimulus after the last financial crisis. We sent out millions of checks. If, you know, God forbid we have another crisis in five years or 10 years, and we are still trying to figure out how to spin up the check printing machines to send checks to people, that is an utter failure of innovation and government. And we shouldn't accept that. That was not your question, though. Your question was about PPP. PPP, they were under an immense amount of pressure to move very quickly. And that meant the program shifted constantly. And there was a little bit of sort of an emotional wearing down of small businesses and banks where there were so many program changes in such a short period of time that everyone sort of ran out of steam. And you ended up seeing by the end of PPP, there were still hundreds of millions of dollars that hadn't been loaned out. And I think there's two things that could have been done better there. One there was still an assumption that sort of making those loans was going to be a manual paper process, even in the height of, of COVID. Plaid actually, in about a week and a half, I think the thing that I was proudest of our product and engineer people ever doing, put together a new product that allowed small businesses to digitally share instantly their payroll data in order to qualify for a loan. If we were able to do that that quickly, uh, I think everyone would have been able to do it that quickly. And if you had had a digital first approach and one where as the program criteria changed, the digital process could instantly change as well, instead of having to go back and redo all of your paper flows, that would have made the program much more efficient and maybe stopped the burnout. The other thing was there were real concerns about the forgiveness process. And this is one that makes me a little bit mad because the structure of this program was really not to loan money to small businesses because small businesses didn't need a loan. They needed a grant. And the way the program was structured was, we will loan you the money if you can prove to us two months later that the money was used for a certain set of qualifying expenses. We will convert it from a loan to grant and you don't need to pay it back. Right. It was really unclear how that process was going to work. And there were businesses that made the choice to not take out a loan because they were worried about it not converting to a grant and they couldn't handle the additional debt. That's another one where setting a really clear set of standards and again, having this assumption of the business can digitally share its information with the government or with a bank in order to demonstrate that it qualified for the grant makes the process so much simpler. It reduces so much friction. And I think you would have seen much greater confidence, particularly at the end of the program, that this was something that a small business could participate in. Overall, I think PPP was very successful in blunting the impact of the crisis. But it still had this basic assumption of manual paper-based processes that are really, really friction-heavy and clunky to change. And that simply doesn't reflect the current world for consumers and small businesses, which is increasingly a low-friction digital financial services environment. And that's what they expect. And government needs to meet them where they are. 
So, you know, kind of we have the magic wand. How do we get to that target state of all these financial institutions, small businesses, people having this transparent information flow amongst each other in the IRS and the government? Magic wand uh, is something I should never be given because <laughs> I never trust myself to actually know the right answer. I like to think that there's a lot of people with something close to the right answer, and we all need to talk to each other to optimize our chances of getting That was close. a beautiful political answer, by the way. <laughs> tell you spent a lot of time in DC. Yeah, thank you. Never good to pretend that you've got the answers to every question because that's the fastest way to demonstrate that you're an idiot. And I try to not do that whenever I can. So there's a real opportunity right now, I think, which is COVID has broken down so much of our way of life on a day-to-day basis. And it's done it in our relationship with each other. It's done it in our relationship with our finances and our jobs. And it's done it in our relationship to the government uh, and the relationship with the government and its citizens. That's terrible. But it means there's an opportunity in rebuilding to say, what is the future that we want to rebuild? And why should it be different from what we had in the past? And to me, building on this idea of consumer control over their finances as a fundamental right and consumer access to their information as a fundamental right, both at banks and at government and everywhere else, creates an opportunity to build a different world and build one that's much more inclusive, right? We've got 50 million unbanked Americans or underbanked Americans who have been left out of financial services. Let's not just assume that that continues forward from here. Let's say that's unacceptable. We've got a moment where things have changed and now we need to rebuild from those changes and we're going to rebuild, not assuming that those 50 million people are still left behind. We're rebuilding with them included. Same thing with government, right? We have assumptions about how government interacts with its citizens and sort of what data you have access to and how you how much control you have. Let's challenge that assumption. Let's build for a future that we want, not the past that we had. One of the things I'm most excited about, actually, that's sort of just a, a proof point of this one is cash flow underwriting. So many people in this country have no credit score or a very thin file credit score where they basically are just not credit worthy in the eyes of the banks. But they are credit worthy. They just don't have a personal financial history that is understood to be credit worthy in the old system. And the old system was one where consumers didn't have control. The information that a credit bureau had over you was information that they went out and gathered. It was often wrong. It was often incomplete. It wasn't you demonstrating your own credit worthiness. Cash flow underwriting gives people a chance to demonstrate whether they are credit worthy by just showing something that you and I and everyone else has, which is a history in your bank account of money flowing in and money flowing out. It's not a new concept, right? Like every business that borrows money probably went through a cash flow underwriting as part of that small business loan or large business loan. But consumers haven't had access to that tool because the information has been locked away. I think that particularly coming out of this crisis where people's credit reports are going to be an absolute mess because of all of the crazy things that happened during COVID, cash flow is going to be the earliest and I think strongest signal of who can handle additional credit, who can borrow money in order to help rebuild. And the thing that's really nice about it is the who can be 
more people than usually get access to credit, right? It doesn't just have to be people who, you know, have an 850 FICO because they've established a really strong credit history based on the traditional way of evaluating credit. Minority populations, people in rural areas, people in bank deserts who have never had the chance to build a credit history are going to be able to show show their cash flow in the same way that you or I could and demonstrate why they should have access and why they should get the credit that they might need to rebuild their business, rebuild their life, and come out of COVID strong. I think it's incredibly exciting. There have been some government nudges in the direction of that from the prudential regulators. I think 2021 is sort of going to be the year where cash flow underwriting for consumer lending really hits hard. And I think there's a huge opportunity to have that be one of the elements that shapes a new and more inclusive financial future. Yeah, it, it's so powerful. And I think I think it was just today that Pedal announced they raised $55 million in their Series C. And I know they're big cash flow underwriting for their product. And I think like I was just thinking about them while I was saying it. They're a really great example of someone who's ahead of the curve on this mm-hmm. one and is going to be well set up for, I think, the future. And that investment demonstrates just how powerful cash flow can be as a tool for consumer access to financial services and responsible underwriting of consumers who have been overlooked in the past. So, John, I think that's a perfect place to stop the episode today, but thank you so much for your insight. This is one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done. I'm excited to get this out to our listeners. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to talk today. And if I haven't completely overwhelmed you with nerds and acronyms and other stuff, I'd be happy to come on anytime. I have a lot of show notes here that I have to get to to, to go Google after this. <laughs> Definitely have my homework. <laughs> uh, I, I will tell you, like, it was probably half the acronym volume that I normally talk in because the secret <laughs> language of DC is converting complex and arcane regulations into completely opaque acronyms that don't make sense at all. My favorite one of which, if you've got like 30 seconds to give this example, there are two mortgage disclosures the Truth in Lending Act disclosure and the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act disclosure. So one of the things the CFPB had to do was figure out how to turn those two disclosures into one disclosure to shorten the process of closing on a home. So you have TILA, Truth in Lending, and RESPA, Real Estate Settlements Procedure. And combined, they are TRID, the TILA RESPA Integrated Disclosure. So it's an acronym summarizing two acronyms <laughs> that summarize two different sections of federal law. It's the best example of Washington, D.C. you will ever find. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I came from consulting. I thought we had a lot of acronyms. This is, yeah, another level. Yeah. I mean, you guys have your races and things like that, but you'll never beat Washington, D.C. <laughs> in the production of acronyms. Yeah. The acronym of acronyms, that's that's very meta. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, thanks a lot. This really was a ton of fun, uh, and I'd, I'd love to come back anytime you'll have me. Yeah, absolutely, John. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know your thoughts in the comments. If you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, 